Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tokyo FinTech Podcast. Today, I'm here with Mikhail Abdullah, who is now the SVP International at SoFi, a recently very acquisitive California-based FinTech. Welcome, Mikhail. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before it came to your current position, there's quite a long history in the industry with you. Why don't you start at the beginning and we'll familiarize our listeners with your journey? Sure. So really began my career at a company called E-Trade. It was uh, one of the first online brokerages in the U.S. and spent 10 years there uh, in, in a very interesting role and feel sort of very fortunate to have had that experience. But I began my career in Menlo Park in Silicon Valley and was working really from day one on E-Trade's international expansion efforts. So I had the opportunity then to work in Europe. I, I had the chance to work in, in London, moved to Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong. So I really had a chance to work sort of all over the world. And it was really, I think, a, an amazing time because the company was growing, sort of went from sort of zero to four million customers fairly rapidly, but gave me an opportunity really to sort of get the international bug and, and really sort of took that into my experience starting my own company. And the company that you founded was in the same space. It just, you've taken the discount brokerage model one step further to be nearly zero fee brokerage. At the time when you founded, that was even before Robinhood came out, which is now kind of seen as a paradigm of zero fee trading. Yes. So my first company was in the online brokerage space. We had launched with E-Trade, Hong Kong's first online broker in 2000. Uh, so I'd had a sort of a lot of experience in Hong Kong and then made the decision to do it myself. And in many respects, at that point, it was born out of a little bit of frustration just because, you know, E-Trade, if it had a list of 100 priorities, 99 of those priorities were for the domestic market, were for the U.S. That's natural. It was the biggest market. But from my sort of vantage point, I really wanted to start a business that I could put 100% focus on. If I had an idea, I could execute it and wasn't dependent on, on anyone else. So that was really part of the drive for doing it. And then the second reason was just seeing an opportunity in Hong Kong that most of the brokers that had launched in sort of, you know, the 2000 timeframe hadn't evolved. And the solution we were really trying to solve for at that point was for younger investors. We had a sort of idea that as long as we could build a product that was, you know, fast, affordable, and simple, there would be a market for it. So we launched eight securities in 2012, really focusing on a younger segment. So sort of fast forward today, 80% of our customers are in their 20s and 30s. I would say most of our competitors, average customers, probably in their mid-50s by this point. And so even at that time, 2012, two questions that come with it. Where did the vision come from to say we make this zero fee or near zero fee type of business? And then secondly, still going back to Hong Kong as a location, wouldn't have been the same in Europe, for example, or Australia. What what led ultimately to see that Hong Kong is the best market for this type of offering? Yeah, so I think, you know, with respect to moving to zero fee, there was a couple of things we did along the way. So we made plenty of mistakes along the way. The first product we launched wasn't the right product. And so, you know, we, we, we definitely had our missteps. But I think the two things we did that really changed the trajectory of the business was number one, making a decision to go mobile only. And we were the first company in Asia to do that. So we didn't even have a web product. We went 
went all in on mobile, and then around the fees and going zero commission. And I would say that the thought around that was sort of twofold. Number one, the business model facilitated it. So the cost to execute a trade online is literally pennies. It's very, very little. And I have a view and, and have a view ever, ever since the sort of beginning of the business that anything that is online and a commodity, a commodity transaction will eventually go to zero. And a trade is a commodity. And I, I think we were eventually going to see zero commission in Hong Kong. We're still today the only one doing a sort of pure zero commission, but others will follow. There's no question about it. You mentioned Robinhood, who's done sort of an amazing job of leading that in the US. And it was like dominoes. You know, you saw E-Trade, Charles Schwab, TD Waterhouse, all of them moved to zero commission just in the last six months. So it's completely changed the industry. To your second part of your question, why Hong Kong? It was never about Hong Kong in and of itself, but rather the broader China opportunity. And more specifically, this initiative called the Greater Bay Area, which sort of takes Guangzhou, Hong Kong, Macau, consolidates it into sort of a single economic zone. And that economic zone is 10 times larger than Hong Kong by itself. And our view wasn't that we were going to go into China and compete with domestic competitors, because that would be suicide, but rather be the destination for all of those sort of Chinese investments that wanted to come out of China. You know, US dollar investments into stocks like, you know, Google, Starbucks, Nike. We knew that that was probably the better avenue and better business model than trying to go into China directly and compete on a domestic basis. So you alluded to some of the mistakes that you made along the way. Are there some of those that you'd like to disclose for other founders maybe to benefit from it and not make the same mistake? If we have five, six hours, I can tell you all of them, but I'm going to pick a few. <laughs> I'm going to pick a few. I think the primary one that always sort of strikes me was I think we got our first product wrong. And what I mean by that was I think we could have done a much better job very early gathering customer feedback. And in hindsight, it sounds like such an obvious thing, right? And it's such a key lesson for entrepreneurs to listen to customers before you build your product. And I think maybe having been in the industry for as long as I had with E-Trade, I think there was a sort of false sense that we knew what customers wanted because we were building something new. But what we basically got wrong was at the time, this was sort of web 2.0 and a lot of sort of work done around personalization. So our idea was we would give customers full personalization of their investing experience. So whether you were a beginner or whether you were in a sort of an active trader and had a lot of experience, you could build your interface the way you wanted it to be. We had had a sort of internal app store. I could drop widgets into a dashboard and I could completely personalize that experience. But what we learned was people just want simplicity. And if I could do it over, if I had a do-over, I would have made it sort of simple from the very beginning, not necessarily given people a lot of choice, but just focus on simplicity. In hindsight, it was too complicated. We were asking our customers to do too much. So really, you know, failed to get a lot of traction on that first product, went through a couple of iterations. And, and as I mentioned, you know, it really didn't start taking off until we made that decision to go mobile only. The other thing that you've wrote in one of your blogs was that you had a hundred page pitch deck for fundraising, which is kind of yes. expensive. <laughs> exactly. I'm very sort of naive going into the fundraising process after leaving E-Trade. So I had never done it before. And I think one of the lessons learned there was, yes, I think the, the sort of business plan and pitch deck was far too long and nobody has the attention span or will to read something that's 100 pages long. I think as an entrepreneur, you're inclined that I don't want to leave anything out. Every side I prepare is important, uh, tells a story, but you really do want to sort of keep it short and simple. It matters. I think the other mistake was I 
sent so many of these pitch decks cold to venture capital. So I sort of prepared a list of all the VCs across the world that I was sort of sure would be interested in a business like this, but sent them cold. And they can tell you over the course of the 10 years, never once did a cold pitch ever result in $1 of investment. So this idea that you should get a warm introduction is absolutely right. The second lesson learned with VCs was very, very hard to get someone outside of your geography to invest in it if you're offshore. So very difficult to get, for example, Americans to invest in Hong Kong, very difficult to get sort of Japanese investors to invest outside of Japan and so on. So you want to really focus on your core geography because that's where the investors will come. Very hard to get people to write checks offshore. So in total, you raised about 60 million US dollars, right? Where did they come along the journey and what are some of your experiences with the venture capitalists? As a business, because we're a regulated business, and a B2C consumer fintech company, we had to raise a fairly large initial round. That initial round was 8 million US dollars because we had to raise money for regulatory capital. We had to have sufficient runway for the regulator to be comfortable in order to license us in Hong Kong. So it was quite a big round, not common. So we raised $8 million in our initial round. Most of that money came from family offices, which were and sort of continued to be a very important funding source in Hong Kong. What was interesting was we found traction with family offices and interest in family offices, but it was really hard to get the first investment in. But once the first investor made the decision and wrote the first check, we were able to close the rest of the round in a matter of weeks. I think that was another sort of important lesson learned that getting that first investor, very, very tough to do. But once you do, it makes it much easier to raise the rest of the round. So over the course of the business, continued to raise funding in order to, you know, most of it was sort of growth capital just to sort of fuel the growth of the business, but we really were able to diversify our investors over time. Sort of as we got into our A round, had to focus less on family offices and focus more on venture capital. Because we had traction and because we were growing, we were able to find one VC in the US, FinTech VC in the US, that was interested in investing overseas, which was quite unique because not many were. Uh, and that was a company called Route 66. So they made a, a, an investment. At a later stage, Nomura from Japan made a strategic investment in the business. And ultimately, we ended up raising a little bit over 60 million. Totally agree, right? It's always the easiest is to find the second to the fifth investor. And if you then manage at some point to actually find the first one, then everybody will suddenly come on board. But that person or that company that puts the initial trust in you, that's really the hardest turtle to overcome. We're leading towards Japan now. Part of your expansion was then into Japan as the second market. And you commentary around that was probably a thousand good reasons not to run a startup in parallel in China and Japan, but how much fun would that be? So how much fun was it to do it across these two locations? It was fun. But what I would say is, and I often say this, I think as an entrepreneur, nine out of 10 days are really, really hard. They aren't fun. Things go wrong. Your lead engineer is resigned. Your killer product feature isn't working, what have you. So nine out of 10 days are hard, but that one day that works and everything goes right, makes up for the rest. So my caveat is it was a lot of fun, but also very, very hard, very hard work. 
the decision to go into Japan was one that we didn't take lightly. We launched our business in Hong Kong, and it was really just the second year into our business in Hong Kong that we made the decision to go into Japan. I think some of the confidence came that SoftBank was one of the early investors in E-Trade. And while we were running E-Trade's international business, we had some sort of interaction with SoftBank and what is now SBI Securities in Japan. So there was some experience there, but I don't think it fully prepared us for how difficult it was was to sort of build a business in Japan. I think one of the core lessons learned was in hindsight, coming in not only as a foreign startup, but just being a startup and not having the backing of a big Japanese brand to build trust made things difficult. That was quite hard. In hindsight, I probably would have sort of undertaken that challenge a lot earlier in the process. Second, can't underestimate the cultural differences between the two geographies, both in terms of the customers and the team. And I think attitude towards launching products. I've written about it before, but I really feel the difference between China and Japan, it's really a quality versus speed trade-off. And what I mean by that is consumers in China, I think, are willing to take an imperfect product on the basis that it's fast and it's affordable. And once you launch an imperfect product, you learn from customers, they give you feedback, and you sort of progress and advance the product. So that was sort of second nature to us. That was quite comfortable. Whereas in Japan, the team felt very differently about it. You know, how can we launch an imperfect product? And anybody that spent time in Japan or lived in Japan, you know, you understand how high the quality standard is across the board. There is very little tolerance for imperfect products. But the benefit of that is if you can build a quality product, your customers tend to be very loyal and they'll pay more for that product. So that's what you have to achieve. But I think for a startup where doing iterative product development, being very, very agile, trying to apply that in Japan was really hard. I think that was the biggest challenge in launching in Japan was this difficulty in getting an attitude around the team to be agile, to be iterative, because there was a sense that customers would not accept it. And going back to the earlier comments you made about launching in Hong Kong, where the experience was too complex for the customers, if I look at the typical Japanese user experience, customer experience, even today, the websites are just very dense. There's lots of information. It's really hard to navigate at times, right? You need to come to the 10th page to figure out that actually, no, you now don't want to do the transaction. So did you have similar experience that maybe what you built initially in Hong Kong would have been a better fit for Japan? Or did Japan then accept the simplified product that you had without any issue? I think you're absolutely right, especially in our category and especially in financial services. I think it's false that customers want this sort of denseness and want this complexity in their products. Many incumbents make their products complex by design. And I think any product, whether it's in China, Hong Kong, Japan, that again is sort of built around these three pillars of being simple, fast, affordable, will win. You know, I've opened a bank account in Japan. It was a nightmare. Navigating that bank account and sort of relationship over time, banking relationship over time was a nightmare. If there was an alternative in Japan, and you're sort of seeing this beginning in Hong Kong, where you have this big movement towards sort of virtual banks, there's no question in my mind, customers would prefer it. 
I think everybody prefers simplicity, affordability, and speed. I just think it's the incumbents that sort of held on to this belief that customers want this complexity. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true either. I think there's this, it's a falsity and that comes from hand-holding the consumer through everything the consumer is doing. And they just patiently sit through the sales process and inside wish to get out of it as soon as possible. The moment will be some differentiation and you get to simplify UI. And I think some of the Japanese fintech startups, whether they are insurance or payments, have demonstrated that there will be maybe slowly because it's still a bit of a generational thing, but there will be a migration towards the simplification. And I hope quite honestly, personally, that the pandemic we find ourselves in will contribute to accelerating that path because there's enough discussion now around getting rid of the hankel, having digital right. submission of documents, actually getting to digital signatures, which legally you, you could have used for 10 years. I think DocuSign has been right. here for 10 years, but the cultural acceptance isn't there. So hopefully it goes forward pretty quickly now. I think it will. I definitely think it will. And the other factor here where what that makes any sort of change difficult, and I don't think it's sort of specific to financial services, but for any industry is just the incumbents don't want to change and they're not incentivized to change and they're not incentivized to take risk. All of the incentives that an entrepreneur has, it's the exact opposite for someone working in a sort of an incumbent institution. So you take all of those factors into the equation. It's no surprise things haven't evolved more quickly in Japan, but I think you're right. I think we're probably at a bit of a sort of tipping point now where the environment we're in today is going to accelerate all of that. And I heard somebody say, and I think it's absolutely correct, that it is accelerating what was inevitable. It's not necessarily driving change. So it's not driving sort of fundamental change. I think the seeds were there for all the things you mentioned, digital onboarding, simplicity, people having less time. I and mean, all of these things are just happening at an accelerated pace now. So if there is a sort of you know silver lining to any of this, and it is hard to find, that may be one that it is going to drive positive change. And so also what you said, uh, I mean, the first hurdle is like getting your entity set up, which I think has become a little bit easier. The biggest hurdle still is getting the bank account, as you described. And then the third one is to hire people. And you've talked about that on your blog as well. How did you manage ultimately to attract talent in Japan? Yeah, I think many of the challenges with talent in Japan actually also do apply to Hong Kong. And being American, when I started the company, I had this sort of false sense that I would be able to recruit people because it was going to be a cool company. It was going to be something very different. People would be willing to take 30% less salary because we're able to give them equity. And, and all of those things <laughs> turned out to be absolutely false. And, and I sort of attribute that to two things in Asia as a sort of generalization, it is hard to find people that are willing to sort of accept risk, that have a, a fairly high tolerance for risk. That's certainly true in Japan. That's not an easy quality to find in people. What I mean by that is, of course, as a startup, you have to take calculated risks all of the time. And I tell people every day, nine out of the 10 things we try probably won't work. The name of the game is finding the one thing that works and trying 10 more things. That's essentially how we advance and evolve as a business. But finding people that are comfortable to sort 
to raise their hand and say, I tried this, it didn't work, it failed, I want to try again, not easy to do. And then the second quality is finding people that are, are really self-directed. And that you know goes back to sort of the educational system where in America, I think it's a very common trait. People are self-directed, they come in every day, they have a sense of what they want to accomplish, and they just get on with it, as opposed to actively being managed and being told what to do. So you take those two qualities in combination, I think broadly across Asia, it does make hiring for a startup difficult. I think the way you ultimately do recruit a team is you have to show some degree of traction. You have to show that customers are coming on board with your product. Once you do that and you can show some traction, I think people are more comfortable to sort of take the leap. Coming back to the zero fee model, given that we might have some listeners who are scratching their head and saying, okay, I'm not paying for the trades. How do they make money? Part of that was a subscription model. And people like Robinhood, they're selling the order flow to hedge funds, basically, right? So that's where they make money. How do you make money ultimately? So we have two lines of business. We have the core B2C business and we have B2B business. And that's really B2B to C. So we're in essence selling software to large institutions, large banks that in turn provide that product to their customers. So the benefit of the B2B side of the business is that it is very predictable revenue and it's high margin revenue. It's recurring. So that is one very, very important component to our business model. And I think you see a lot of fintech companies that have sort of done that and moved into that space. But what's more important is the B2C business, because that's our sort of, you know, DNA and what's important to us. We make revenue in a number of ways. So yes, the commission is zero, but the real opportunity, I think, is more sort of premium services. So you have in brokerage, you have a line of business is, is margin lending, stock lending, those lines of business you can charge for, and they represent a fair amount of revenue. And that's sort of the 80-20 rule, where maybe only 20% of customers will use some of those services, but does represent a fairly high revenue line. And, and we can afford to still do those at a more than competitive rate because we're a pure online business. So our margins are higher. Other lines of revenue for us is foreign exchange. So we may be dealing in RMB, Hong Kong dollar, US dollar, Japanese yen. Those currencies have to be converted depending on what product the customer wants to use. So as long as we're very transparent with the customer in terms of what those fees are, that's another line of business. We we earn interest income on the deposits that customers make. So it's sort of the idle cash that they're not investing at the time. So there are a number of different ways to generate revenue. And we're still sort of experimenting with subscription and different models. Like any business, probably the sort of premium model where I can have sort of more advanced features, more advanced content. We're using social trading, this, this idea of generating data from customer and data generating insights from customers and potentially packaging that as a new form form of market data. So as today, for example, people may use news, charts, quotes, very traditional stuff when you make an investment decision. We think what is more interesting is if I'm interested in, in investing in Nike, for example, you know, what percentage of the community today is buying Nike? What is the sentiment on Nike? Is it positive, negative? What percentage of holdings in the aggregate sort of portfolio of the community does Nike represent? What are people talking about with respect to this stock? So really taking insights, real-time insights from the community 
community and presenting those back to clients in a valuable way is another area we could potentially monetize. We're not doing that today. All of that is free, but it is a potential source of revenue in the future. I also am completely with you. I always say there's, there's two things that will be free in the end. And one is stock trading. The other is payments. So it's obviously a whole wallet disappearing. We're talking about around 50 billion in fees on stock trading and payments are a significant part of banks income as well. So how do you see that impact on the competitive landscape across banking and securities companies in the future? For incumbents, I think this change is going to be devastating. I, I think that really, do we need branches? I, I make the sort of comparison sometimes. If you sort of HSBC as an example in Hong Kong, if you walk into the HSBC building, it's 40 stories high. I don't know. It's a big building. <laughs> if you were to walk around every one of those floors and look at what people are doing, are they focused on a mobile product? Are they focused on simplifying it, making cheaper? I don't think so. There might be a sort of floor to doing that, but the vast majority of the bank isn't. So I think that fintech is going to be absolutely sort of devastating to banks. They're going to have to change. Saw interesting news in Japan that Monix has just announced that it's moving and this is a their core business is brokerage. But I think because you're seeing this huge trend towards zero commission, they're pivoting towards asset management because that is still an area where you can charge fees. So you're really going to see a big, big shifts in the industry. And I think unlike any other industry, financial services has been sort of protected for too long. And that's been due to regulation and, and a number of issues we've already discussed. What you see Amazon do to retail is exactly what we're going to see happen to financial services, period. Yeah, and the Monarch story is in a way surprising, right? Because when did Matsumoto-san, it was probably in the late 90s or so when Monarch was founded. So they had like a 20-year runway and you mentioned also SBI earlier and it's really Kitao-san at SBI who's been promoting zero-fee trading now mm -hmm. in Japan and said, we're going to bring it here. We've taken the first step. They've taken the first step in December 2019 and they laid out the next two, which will depend on the competitive situation. But in a way, they are the latecomer. And so they're really shaking up the market now. I think it's exactly right. And um, it is so interesting to see these companies that at the time when I was young and starting my career, you know, E-Trade was the innovator. E-Trade Japan, what is now sort of SBI, was the innovator. But fast forward, you know, 20 years, and we have a completely new sort of, you know, paradigm shift happening now where there's a new sort of wave of innovations and they're the new incumbents. You know, that's the reality. I never sort of thought I'd sort of see the day where I'd look at E-Trade and say, wow, this is a, you know, this is an incumbent, you know, they're not moving fast enough. Uh, they haven't taken the sort of initiative to sort of bring some of these innovations that one would expect. It's been, it's been coming from the outside. It's been coming from Robinhood and, and Betterment and others. And that's happening in every country. So yeah, it is really a fascinating change to see these companies that, that really the in sort of innovators of their time on their heels today. And your last round raised had, as you mentioned also earlier, Nomura as a strategic investor. So what's the path forward with Nomura? Because obviously, if there's anybody relying on retail outlets in Japan for brokerage, it's Nomura. Are you going to be the catalyst to change their business model? When we started the discussions with Nomura, they have vision. And I think that they see digital as being important. It's a business that sort of needs to evolve. So I think they see digital as being a core component of their long-term strategy. I think they see that distribution is absolutely 
absolutely changing from branch, and, and I think you've already sort of seen action taken there, but from branch to desktop to now mobile, and maybe it'll be something else in the future. So distribution is changing as well. And when you change products and your distribution, that fundamentally has to change your business model, your cost structure, everything else. So I think whether it's Nomura or whether it's others, there are those that are taking the steps to change, and there are those that I think continue to have their head in the sand and are not willing to make those changes. And it's probably fairly evenly split. For those that are making the changes, it's not going to be easy. Change is not easy, but when you're sort of an entrenched business, going to be sort of painful decisions you're making. And then for those that have their head in the sand, they just simply won't be around the future. They have no future. So yeah, it's been interesting. You know, I think Nomura is moving in the right direction. I can see some of their competitors that aren't, but really time will tell. Nomura also partnered up with Line to create the brokerage here in Japan. You're not part of that game plan in any shape or form, or are you? No. So our relationship with Nomura was around robo-advisor. So that's really more the sort of asset management advisory side of our business. So when we look at the market, there's two types of customers typically. There are those that are passive and need help. And for them, robo-advisor is the right product. And then the other side of the market are those that are self-directed. Uh, they're more active, hands-on with their investment. So another big difference between sort of China and Japan, Chinese Hong Kong investors are definitely more hands-on, self-directed. And I'm speaking more about, you know, millennials here, younger customers. I think obviously in Japan, you know, older customers, very used to sort of managing their money, very used to brokerage. But if we're talking about our customers that are in their 20s, 30s, I definitely think passive investments are more the right product for Japan, whereas self-directed products for Hong Kong, China. Really, our focus in Japan was more around robo-advisory, less brokerage, and that's really around sort of digital advice and automated portfolio management. So before we take a look at the future, you've been at this for nine years with eight securities. So as people say, it took you nine years to become an overnight success. Doesn't feel like this blitzscaling that Silicon Valley tries to promote and that famous Reed Hoffman book with the same name. So if you look back at your journey once more, all these talk about scaling, what reaction does this provoke in you? I think that the number of companies that are able to brutally build a big, meaningful business in the span of one, two, three years, you can probably count on your hand. I think it's very, very rare. It's very often that you you sort of look at a business on the outside, outside looking in, and it feels like that business is a success. But what you don't see is that company may have pivoted three or four times. You know, a good example would sort of be Instagram. On the outside looking in, looks like they built that product and it was an overnight success. But what you don't see is the number of pivots they made in order to find that. And I think that's quite normal with a lot of companies. Very few companies get it right the first time. And the reality is, you know, the numbers that 90% of, of startups, you know, they're not going to succeed. And that's due to a number of reasons. I think, unfortunately, it's getting even harder in this current environment where raising money has become harder. I guess my advice is you have to be patient when you start a company. You have to have a view that it's going to take five to 10 years to build something meaningful. I've never met a company or a founder in my own experiences who's able to do it in less time than that. Right. We're then hitting 2020. We alluded to this maybe very briefly at the beginning. You exited eight securities and you got acquired by Sulfine, who did their first acquisition, I think, just a few weeks prior to you, right, with Galileo as it's a payment vendor. And so this is their first acquisition internationally. So you're comparing to the E-Trade experience 
experience. You're, again, the, the smaller international business trying to educate the big American headquarter about all the customs and business practices outside of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, it is. There are a lot of parallels, but, you know, I think first and foremost, really excited about this exit to SoFi. There is something really satisfying about building a consumer fintech business that a company like SoFi valued, if that makes sense. And I'm really happy that the exit was to a consumer financial technology company, as opposed to a sort of, you know, more traditional business that was looking to get into digital. A digital business acquiring our business allows us to do things much faster because the DNA, attitude, culture, everything is very similar. When they approached us uh, last year, there was just a lot of alignment around strategy. So focus on mobile, a lot of alignment around the customer. So focus on millennials, customers in their 20s and 30s. But most important, they really wanted a platform and springboard by which they could grow internationally. And I think the technology that we had built and obviously the team, many of which came from E-Trade and built E-Trade's international business, lent itself to that. So, you know, across the board, it's been very comfortable, you know, so far. We are the only international business that SoFi has today, but there's a lot of ambition to expand that business. So really it's kind of, you know, continue to be very entrepreneurial, continue to grow the business. And I think SoFi and the CEO of SoFi was actually the, the prior COO of Twitter, Anthony Nodo. And so he comes from a business that really understands international, really understands scaling, really understands scaling internationally. So obviously having someone like him at the helm that, that sort of understands what needs to be done helps. When you look at the SoFi relationship from the outside, it could go in two directions. could be also using your technology with SoFi, but they already have SoFi Invest. And then the other direction is more pushing the SoFi product portfolio into the international realm, obviously with Hong Kong and Japan as the first. But maybe you can also talk about other countries that are on the list as far as you can. Any financial technology deployment, what SoFi has built in the U.S. and they've built a very, very big business in the U.S., you know, now sort of surpassing a million members, that was really built for the domestic market. So U.S. dollar products for Americans. What we built was really purpose for not only Hong Kong investors, but when we set out to build the technology, it was very much with a view that we wanted to avoid some of the difficulties we had with E-Trade. And what I mean by that is every time you entered a new market, you had to build a new back, middle, and front office. Uh, and you do that across 14 geographies, that's not a scalable business model. That's really hard. So when we built eight, it was really to identify technology and build a solution that would avoid that. So when we built it now, you know, the platform is, you know, multi-currency, multi-markets, uh, multi-regulatory, multi-currency and on and on. To give you a sense of the proof in that, when we built the product in Hong Kong, when we deployed that platform in Japan using Japanese yen and TSE listed exchange traded funds, we literally did that in six weeks. Being able to sort of have that flexibility and speed to deploy into a new geography quickly is really, really vital. And I think, you know, SoFi saw that uh, and the importance of doing that. In the foreseeable future, I think the focus now is really on Asia, continue to focus on important geographies in Asia. I think Taiwan's an important market. I think Singapore's an important market. More markets in Southeast Asia, but I think we have to see more sort of regulatory evolution there. We obviously have a lot of experience in Europe as well. And so there's a lot of sort of big geographies in Europe that we'd like to tackle. I think we're just going to be methodical about it, take it one geography at a time. But the vision definitely is to be in a number of geographies across the world and take the SoFi brand, you know, make it a global brand. It's fantastic. So congratulations on the whole journey and where you are now. 
often it feels like an exit is the end of the story, even if the executives get retained for a while. But in your case, it feels like a new beginning. Of course, you've done it with E-Trade before. You've got the experience, but now scaling so far internationally opens uh, a whole new horizon. That sounds truly exciting. Being very sort of frank about it, very hard to have the ambition we're able to have today with eight securities, for example, because when you're a venture-backed company and you want to expand in new geographies, it's quite difficult to do. You've got to go out there. You've got to raise money. It is, frankly, a lot more difficult to convince a regulator in a new geography to license a startup than it is a company like SoFi. So it does open up avenues that just were not possible or very, very difficult with a startup. It opens up channels and, and allows us to think much bigger, be more ambitious about what we want to do simply because we have a bigger brand, more resources, you know, and a much bigger team, you know, behind us in order to do that. So I am excited about it. It is sort of like back to the future because it does remind me a lot of the E-Trade days, which I just, you know, very sort of fond of those times because we launched in 14 different countries in, in pretty short order and was a lot of fun. So very different than sort of being the founder of a startup, but, but no less interesting and, and no less fun in my opinion. Super. Fantastic conversation. Thank you very much, Mikal. Any closing comments, maybe? The one thing I'd like to say in, in closing is just a word to all those entrepreneurs out there that are challenged today. And everybody is challenged in different ways. You're challenged in terms of raising money. You're challenged in terms of you know your macro environment. You're challenged in a, a hundred different ways. But the one thing I want to say is the best work we ever did at Eight Securities is when we had constraint. Embrace constraint. And what I mean by that that is when it takes twice as long to raise money, you start to get creative real quick. You start to focus really, really in a way that you didn't before. So embrace constraint, let it focus you, let it accelerate the tough decisions you need to make, maybe around the size of your team, maybe around having two products instead of four. Embrace it because once you make it out at the other end, you and your business will be in a much stronger position than it is today. So my message is embrace constraint. Well said. And you started 2011. So after the last financial crisis and seems like 2020, 2021 will be a good vintage year for startups again. Exactly. If you can survive this, you can survive anything. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Mikhail. Really appreciate having you on the show. All the best with the journey going forward with SoFi. Thank, thank <laughs> you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>